Well, have you ever started something with good intentions of finishing, but just as you went along, it got hard and you thought, okay, I, I, I quit, I'm done. Uh, it may be a home project that you wanted to do something on your house, or it may be a new hobby you thought would be fun to start, and then as you got into it, it was just mm, too hard, I'm done. You know, it may be even a relationship that you thought would be a great relationship and it got hard and you thought, I can't continue with this. I, I shared with you uh, years ago about uh, my love. When I was young and fit and adventuresome, I loved climbing 14,000-foot mountains in Colorado. And I remember that first attempt... I was on staff with Campus Crusade, and a group of us decided we were going to climb Long's Peak. And we started out, took us two days, we spent the night at the tree line and then climbed the rest, well, attempted to climb the rest of the way. I got about, oh, 30 minutes short of the summit. And it was snow-covered ice, we had ice picks, we're digging in, trying to find footing. And I got to a place right under the summit that... I just said, I'm done. This is it. I quit. Y'all go ahead. I'll sit here and I'm fine. I quit. They went on and they came back. Um, and then I regretted it because as I heard them share about the view and just the exhilaration of finishing, I, I realized that I wish I had just kept going, but I didn't. But I made sure on the next two mountains I did. And so, um, but it's easy to start something, but it is hard to finish it when the going gets tough. And so in our lesson this week, the author is encouraging his readers to finish the course. Don't quit. Don't turn back. You know, remember one of the reasons that he wrote this letter to these Jewish believers was to encourage them don't quit this journey with Christ. Don't go back to Judaism because it's getting hard. You finish the course. You keep going. And so he addresses this in Hebrews 10. And so if you have your Bibles, and hopefully you have it open to Hebrews 10, that's where we're going to spend our time. And I am not going to talk much about the first 18 verses of chapter 10 because, to be honest, we have been studying that the last nine weeks, we pretty much know what um, those verses are telling us exactly what we've been just digging over and, and looking at those first nine chapters of the book. And so he concludes this section that where he's been focusing on the superiority of Christ. Yes, Jesus is a superior high priest. He is a superior sacrifice. And he's ushered in a superior covenant. And so verse 18 of chapter 10, he brings this section to a close with these words in verse 18. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. His sacrifice didn't just cover our sins for a year. His sacrifice forgave our sins once and for all for eternity. So as a result, there's no longer a need to continue with that old covenant and bringing sacrifices as part of a ritualistic 
system. The shadows of the Old Testament have now become reality. It's like looking at a photo of a person and thinking, oh, yeah, I mean, I can't, I'd like to meet him in person. Well, now that, that person's here, so you don't need to look at the photo anymore. And that's kind of the picture that he's giving here. It's done. The, the real thing is here, the real person. So the author has now completed, in the middle of this chapter, he has completed his teaching on doctrine about Jesus. I mean, this has all been doctrinal teaching theology in these first nine and a half chapters. Now, we move into application. And I know y'all are sad to leave these chapters of, of, of theology. They've been challenging. But starting in the this last half of chapter 10, he moves into application, which will continue through the rest of the book. And next week, uh, Christina Horton will be taking us into the chapter of faith. But that's where we're going to spend our time today, is on the application in the last half of chapter 10, verses 19 to 39. And in that section, he gives us five exhortations to help us finish the course, to keep us from quitting when the going gets tough. So, the first exhortation he gives is draw near to God. This is in Hebrews 10, 19 to 22, and I'm going to read those verses. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I want to address two questions from these verses. The first question is, why are we able to draw near? And that's, that's obvious. I mean, he answers that in these verses, in verses 19 to 21. We can confidently draw near to God because Jesus paid for our sins with his blood once and for all. And there's no longer that veil that separates man from God. And so Jesus is our high priest who welcomes us into the Holy of Holies to meet with God. It's because of the blood of Christ that we're able to draw near. There's no longer a separation because he's covered our sins. And then the second question I want to look at from this passage is, how are we to draw near to God? How do we approach God? Now that we have access to Him, how do we approach Him? Verse 22, he says, With a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So he really gives us four ways to draw near to God. The first is draw near with a sincere heart. And that Greek word there for sincere means genuine, without superficiality, without hypocrisy or an ulterior motive. We should draw near and just be ourselves. Be real with God. Don't tell Him everything's going great when it's not. Don't tell Him that you don't have any sin to confess when you do. Come with a sincere heart. Tell them what you're struggling with. 
He wants you to be real when you approach him. Second, draw near with a confident heart. He says that when he says, in full assurance of faith, meaning, draw near confident in the work of Christ on your behalf. You put your faith in Christ, now you come and you draw near in that full assurance of what that faith brings into your life. You're confident that God wants to meet with you face to face because of what Jesus has done and you put your faith in what he's done. And then third, draw near with a guilt-free heart. He says, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We don't need to come to him weighed down with guilt from past sins because he's covered those sins He has paid for them. You're forgiven. Don't carry that weight of guilt with you. Even driving in this morning, um, a thought crossed my mind of just things in in my past, things I wish that had never happened. And I thought, nope, not going there. Covered. We're moving on. Thank you, Jesus. Don't come in with the guilt of the past. Yes, mourn over your sin, but bring it to him and say, I hate that I did that, God, but thank you that you have forgiven me. I I hate that I did it. I confess it, but thanks for your forgiveness. We approach him with a guilt-free heart. Fourth, approach him, draw near to him with a cleansed heart. He says, our bodies washed with pure water in verse 22. You know, some scholars say he's talking about baptism, but I, I agree with the scholars. I take the view of the scholars who, who says that he's talking about just being cleansed completely, internally and externally, that we are internally cleansed of our sins by his blood at the point we came to Christ. We have a cleansed heart because we've been washed by his blood. So that's how we approach him. That's how we draw near to God. And so the question for you to consider, are you embracing this privilege to draw near to God every day? You know, the high priest had to wait once a year. We can do it every day, all day long. Do you enjoy spending time in his presence? Do you take time to just be still? You know, or is it just a ritual that you're going through? Like, oh, I've got to do this. Check this off. Check, I've done it. Met with God. You know, let's not take for granted this privilege that we have to step into the presence of God and be still and enjoy Him. When I was on staff with Crusade, and I've shared this years ago, I think when we talked about the tabernacle, when I was on staff with Campus Crusade, I remember one of our teachers at staff training talking about just quiet time and meeting with the Lord. And he was saying that the purpose of a quiet time isn't to just do Bible study. Although we we can study the Bible in our time with him. That's a great thing to do, but that's not the purpose. The purpose of a quiet time isn't just to pray and bring requests, although that's part of it. We do. But the purpose of a quiet time is to meet with God 
And I've never forgotten that because I don't want it to be about doing this, doing that. I want it to be about, God, I just want to be with you right now. That is our privilege. If we're going to finish the course, we need to draw near to God and not ignore it, that privilege. The second exhortation is hold fast the confession of our hope. This is in verse 23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. You know, as we've mentioned, they were tempted to forsake their confession of Jesus Christ and return to Judaism because times had gotten hard. They were suffering. Uh, some were facing persecution. And so he is exhorting them, you remain true to your confession of what you know about God, what you believed about Jesus when you came to faith, that is still true today. You hold fast to that. It hasn't changed. Even if you can't see him working, he's still working. You know, and there may have been some who were beginning to doubt God's promises in the midst of these challenges. Well, God, I don't see you loving me right now. I mean, you're... This is hard. This isn't what I thought your word was promising. And so he goes on and he said, he reminds them that he who promised is faithful. He is working. Even when we can't see it, he's faithful to accomplish his purpose. How strong and steadfast is your faith today? Are you holding fast to the confession of your hope? of your belief in Jesus Christ? You know, we're living in challenging days where the world is bombarding us with different thoughts. Are you staying firm? Are you like our theme little mascot this year with our theme steadfast? The seagulls, are you standing with those feet planted face on to those stormy winds? Hold fast your confession of faith. Don't let the world tell you what's true today. You stay steadfast. The third exhortation, spur one another on, verses 24 to 25. I'll read those two verses. Um, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, it, it seems that these believers were not gathering together. They had stopped meeting together. For whatever reason, it could have been they were afraid if they gathered together, they might be more prone to be persecuted. And they were trying to keep their distance. But for whatever was going on, they were not coming together for mutual encouragement from each other. And we need community with you with each other. We need to be in community, encouraging one another in our walk. God designed us for community. You know, we went through that season back in the spring of uh, 2020 when COVID first started and we stopped meeting together in person. And it was hard. I, I will say that Sunday mornings, it's just not the same sitting there with my laptop and, and Hobson and Hannah really are not... Um, <laughs> the most attentive I feel for you young moms trying to rein in the cat, you know, the, the kids. <laughs> and, 
And it doesn't sound the same when you're singing by yourself as when you're singing with voices around you. So it was different. And I know that there are different opinions um, about, you know, what churches should have done. Should we have quit? Should, you know, and, and I trust our leadership. And I think we did what was best with what we knew at that time. And we were doing it for the good of the community. You know, I, I, I believe that God is, is sovereign. I think one thing that came out of that is it made us appreciate being together more than maybe we did when we were just there. It's like all of a sudden it's like, oh, I can't wait to be with you. Versus, okay, I'm just going to get ready and go to church again today. So, I mean, I think God uses everything. But we don't want to just never meet. We need to be together. And so I, I think that there was value in that time, but it's not the way God designed us. We need to spur one another on. And so my question for you is, are you spurring each other on in your walk? Are you spurring one another on or are you causing division and dissension? And maybe pointing a finger at somebody that maybe doesn't have the same view or opinion about things in our world today as you do. And that's been one of the things that's been distressing over the last two years is all the division in churches of, of hearing people say, well, I can't believe you're doing that. You know, well, why aren't you doing this? We need to be spurring one another on, even if we have different opinions. Let's spur each other on in our faith and not divide, not be part of the problem. And so I pray that we would take this, this exhortation seriously and ask, God, I want to spur my sisters on. How can I do that? So he gave three positive exhortations that we've just looked at. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us spur one another on. Now we come to the fourth exhortation, which is a stern warning. All of a sudden, he kind of gets a little bit really heavy here. And that fourth exhortation is, do not reject Christ. And he talks about that in verses 26 to 31. My professor, Dr. Toussaint, uh, said it this way. He said, do not despise God. Because when you reject Christ, it's really despising God. And his gift to us. You know, we've been looking at warnings in the book of Hebrews. There are five warnings in this book. And we've looked at three in the previous chapters. This is the fourth of those five warnings. Do not reject Christ. So let's begin. We're going to dig into this section. I'm sure y'all had questions about this. Let's begin with Hebrews 10.26. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. We're going to stop there because we need to address some things from this verse. First thing we need to address is what does he mean by go on sinning willfully? Well, scholars pretty much agree across the board that he's referring to the sin of apostasy here that willful sinning, that deliberate decision. They're rejecting the gospel. 
It didn't just happen, but they're really thinking, they're, they're deliberately, it's like a high fist saying, I reject you, I'm doing my thing, I'm going. It's falling away from the faith. That's what apostasy is, rejecting Jesus, rejecting the gospel. And it's a willful sin because they willfully chose to do this. It's a deliberate rejection. And then we're going to jump down to verse 28. He describes that willful sin. He describes apostasy in verse 28. In verse 28, he says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So this verse in Hebrews 10, verse 28, it looks back at two passages in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 17. And the sin in those passages involves leaving the law of Moses to worship other gods. And that's apostasy. We're not going to follow God's law. We're not going to follow the Mosaic law that God gave him for us. No, we're going to reject it. We're going to follow these other gods. That's what he's referring to in verse 28. And the penalty was death. And so he continues in verse 29. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? I want to break that verse down because he gives us three characteristics of apostasy in that verse. And the first characteristic is he rejects Christ. The way he puts it in the verse is he has trampled underfoot the Son of God. And that verb trampled in the Greek parallels crucifying the Son of God. It's, it's like he is just stomping on Jesus. I mean, he professed to be a follower of Jesus, and now he's just stepping all over Jesus. He's just, I'm done. I mean, I'm rejecting you. That's what that word trampled gives that idea of just crucifying him. You know, now he doesn't want anything more to do with Jesus. He despises him. He denies any need for Jesus as a savior. So he rejects him. That's the first characteristic of this willful sin of apostasy. Just, I don't need Jesus. I don't want anything to do with him. The second characteristic, he denies the impact of Christ's blood sacrifice. And he says that in this verse, he words it, he is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. This is a serious sin to treat the blood of the covenant, to treat the blood of Jesus as though it were an unholy thing. That's to deny the impact of the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ enables us to draw near to God. The blood of Christ pays for our sins once and for all. And now you're saying... There's nothing to that blood. There's nothing special about it. Just, he's just disregarding it. It's not enough to save us. It has no magic power. And then the third characteristic he mentions in this verse about apostasy. He blasphemes the Holy Spirit. He words it in this verse. He has insulted the Spirit of grace. And that verb insult in the Greek means to mock. He's mocking the Holy Spirit. 
He's blaspheming. He's just talking bad about him, making fun of him. He's showing no reverence to God, to the Holy Spirit, to Jesus. That's blasphemy. So the author gave his readers a stern warning. Don't reject Jesus Christ. Do not go back to Judaism. Finish the course. Finish your journey with Jesus. Don't turn back. Now, he wasn't saying that they had committed or were committing apostasy. He's warning them about it. And he's trying to get across, this is how severe this is. Don't even go there. And there may have been some that had, but he's warning them, don't do this. Another question we need to address from this passage is, who is he referring to here? Is he talking about believers or non-believers? That's the million-dollar question. Um, you know, when I taught Hebrews 6, we wrestled with this. And there are people who say he was talking to one group in Hebrews 6 and another group in Hebrews 10. Others say he's, he's talking to the same group of people. Uh, most scholars, like I said, they agree that it, he's referring to the sin of apostasy, rejecting Jesus Christ. But scholars disagree on the audience that he's referring to in this chapter. You know, some say he's talking to believers. And they, you know, they accepted Christ, but then they rejected Christ and said, I'm turning my back, I'm going back to the old system. And they wouldn't lose their salvation, but they'd lose their reward and they'd go through discipline on this earth. That's one view. The other view is he's referring to non-believers who professed with their mouth and even their actions that they were believers, but had never truly believed, and they rejected Christ when it got hard. Again, it's just like we talked about in chapter 6. So, what's the answer there? <laughs> I don't have an answer my seminary professors took different views. Two of my favorites, Dr. Toussaint and Dr. Constable, have different views on this. One said believers, other non-believers. And as I have studied both sides, I see both arguments. I see, okay, that makes sense. But both have problems. They have some things that I'm like, I don't know if I can quite understand that. So I'm still wrestling with it. So I can't tell you what the answer is because I don't know. And like I said, people I respect don't even agree. You wrestle with it yourselves. <laughs> I'm just giving it to you because I haven't even made a decision yet. I go back and forth. One day I think it's this, but then I'll read and I'll, well, no, maybe it's not. You know, it's one of the questions I can't wait to ask Jesus when I get to heaven or God, you know, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. Who wrote Hebrews? That's the first question. <laughs> and second, who, okay, who is he talking about here? Can you explain that? Of course, it probably won't matter at that point, but <laughs> I, I would love to know his answer. So I'm going to let you wrestle with that. But those are the two views that are taking on this. And again, there are good arguments for both, and there are problems with both. All right. <laughs> the train has choo-chooed. <laughs> All 
All right, another question we need to address in this passage is why would there no longer be a sacrifice for sins? In verse 26, you know, he said, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Well, again, it's like we said in chapter 6. If they reject Christ and say, your blood is not enough, I'm rejecting you, there is no other place they can go for salvation. There is no other sacrifice that will pay for their sins. They can go to other gods, but they're not going to find the forgiveness that we find in Jesus. So that's, he's like, if you reject them, there's not a sacrifice for you. If we're going to finish the course that God has for us and our course with him, we cannot reject Christ and turn away with a hardened heart. So we need to really guard against that. Um, so now we come to the fifth exhortation, the last exhortation. And he kind of changes gear. He's given them this stern warning, and now he's kind of moving back to the positive. And his exhortation is persevere to the end. And he finishes the chapter with this, verses 32 to 39. You know, he starts this section by reminding his readers of their faithfulness in past times before they're going through the times now. He's, he's like, you did this and you've been doing this and this was your attitude. You did so well. And he's praising them. He's encouraging them. You know, but don't give up. Verses 35 and 36 he says, therefore, in light of what you've done in the past, the way you've handled things, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. He's just, he's encouraging them, you persevere. You don't give up, no matter how hard it gets. How do we do that? Well, I think he answers that in verse 38 when he says, My righteous one shall live by faith. That's taken from the book of Habakkuk when he was wrestling with God during a difficult time in his life. If we're going to finish the course, if we're going to persevere to the end, we have to live by faith. We have to walk by faith, not by sight. We have to trust God. God, step by step. And we're going to spend next week looking at what it means to live by faith. So he spurs them on in verse 39. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. He's expressing confidence in them. You know, I know you can do this. I have confidence that you're going to hang in there. You're going to persevere. You're going to keep going. I mean, he's spurring them on. How are we spurring each other on? Again, we come back to that. How are we helping others finish the course that God has put us on? And are you persevering? Even though times may be hard right now and you're growing weary. I think we're all kind of growing weary of the season we're in, in our world. But are we persevering? You know, we're all going to face difficult challenges. 
And there are going to be those times that we think, oh, this is not worth it, Lord. I, I'm done. I, I'm just going to go back to when life was easier. Walking by faith is too hard. But we need to finish the course and keep following Jesus. And so heed these exhortations in this chapter. Draw near to God. Hold fast the confession of our hope. Spur one another on. Do not reject Christ. Persevere to the end. As I think back to that day sitting on the side of Long's Peak when I gave up instead of persevering, I regret not finishing that course. I regret not getting to the top. If I had a do-over, I'd do it differently. But I don't want to regret my life and not finishing well. That's a bigger regret. I don't want to say, enough's enough, I'm, I'm, I'm done. And that's my challenge to us, is that we would finish the course and not quit or sit on the side when it gets tough. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard passage. But there's so many lessons in this that we can take and apply. And Father, I pray that there would not be one woman in this room who stops and doesn't finish her walk with Jesus until they see him face to face. Father, you know what's ahead of us. You know what hard times we may face. Give us that strength to endure and persevere and not turn away from you in anger and walk away. Father, you are faithful. You have called us. I pray that we would finish that course. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.